invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Just put a bookmark there in Matthew chapter 23. We're going to be looking at pretty much the entirety of this chapter for the portion of our study this evening, Matthew chapter 23. As always, it's good to see everyone out this evening. Uh, If you're visiting with us, we're delighted that you're here. You're an honored guest, and we ask that you just stick around for a few minutes after the service that we might get to know you a little bit better. And we invite you back any time that you're able to be with us. Matthew chapter 23. The terms Pharisee or legalist are, I think, tossed around by people. I mean, regardless of whether or not you are within a certain religious community or you are just secular. From religious to non-religious, people generally have some form of idea uh, of, of what people mean when, when someone uses the word Pharisee. And a lot of times, I think, well, I would say most of the times that this is used, it's supposed to be emotionally inflammatory, uh, and, and specifically, it's used in an emotionally inflammatory way towards those who believe in God's word when it comes to the need to obey him. A lot of times when people start focusing on the need for obedience, a lot of times people start focusing on, well, what do the scriptures say? Inevitably, someone's going to start in the conversation by using the terms pharisaical, legalism, and, and it, you know... It, we hear this time and time again. But I think what's hysterical about all of that is that if these people who are you know, just oh so liberated and enlightened about spirituality and about the Bible and about what God expects from his people, I think that if these sorts of people understood how they act and think and looked at how the Pharisees acted and thought, I think that they would see some similarities. Uh, to, from you know to these oso stingy Pharisees, to these oso stingy people, I, and and frankly, when it comes to especially motives, I think that that is the main. I think that's the main uh, uh, crutch of the argument when it comes to what made a Pharisee a Pharisee. It wasn't always the things that they did; it was sometimes just purely the heart that they had, the motives behind what they did. Uh, even though certainly there were things that they did that, that even Jesus is going to rebuke throughout this chapter in Matthew chapter 23. But I, what I want to do this, this evening is just ask the question, are you a Pharisee? Am I a Pharisee? And, and I want to go through this chapter and look at what Jesus says and try to apply these things to what, what does this look like today? What does this look like in the life of a believer? And what does this look like in, in the life of me specifically, personally? And so let's start off as we ask this question of, am I a Pharisee? Are you a Pharisee? Let's start by looking at what the heart of a Pharisee, the heart of really a hypocrite is. Um, Because all throughout Matthew chapter 23, what you find is is as he's speaking to the Pharisees, as he's speaking to the the scribes and the chief priests over and over again, he'll say their names, but then kind of gives this this whole uh, reference point of, of who each of these groups are. Ultimately, they're hypocrites. And that's really what I want to focus on tonight is the, the heart of a hypocrite. And, and in the first few verses here, he really kind of goes through what, they, uh, what their motives are. In verse 1 of Matthew chapter 23, it says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. 
Now we'll stop there for just a moment. From the very beginning, what we just at the beginning of the conversation, not even chapter twenty-three, but when you think about hypocrisy, it's an interesting discussion because on the surface, a hypocrite doesn't look like a hypocrite. You got to do some soul searching. You have to do some investigation. Incidentally, not in everybody else's life. You got to do some investigation in your own life, and you got to think, well, what is Luke doing here? What am I doing here? And so on the surface, it doesn't seem like people are hypocrites. I don't think that the Pharisees walked around just thinking 100% of the time, I'm a big old fat hypocrite. <laughs> I, I, I don't do anything that I say. I don't do anything that I preach. I don't think that they necessarily thought that 100% of the time. I think maybe in some cases they absolutely knew better. But, it, it, you know, it, it's hard and it's tricky sometimes to spot hypocritical uh, tendencies and hypocrisy in our lives. And I'm not saying that it's unidentifiable. In fact, we're going to look at some of these identifying marks in just a moment. But I, I will say it's just tricky to see these motives at play, especially when it comes to, you know, it's easy when it comes to everybody else. But when it's me, it's a lot harder. And I think that's one of the uh, trickiest parts about hypocrisy. We don't want to see that in ourselves. And in verses 1 through 3, what we find is, is Jesus speaking about these scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Uh, it says that, he, that essentially what these people do is they, they, they do at least adhere to, at some level to God's law. And they would, they would espouse it, they'd advocate for it, and they'd say, this is what the law of Moses suggests. This is what the law of Moses states, rather. This, this is the word of God. But ultimately, they don't keep it themselves. And we could go to several different examples. Matthew chapter 15, for example, where they just, they, they, or Mark chapter 12, they just over and over again will even use the law to try and not obey it. And, and, and so they, they're, they're the biggest advocators of preaching and teaching and adhering to the laws that God has given, but they themselves don't keep it. Now, that's easy to say, and that's pretty direct. But again, they didn't realize that they were hypocrites. They didn't realize that they weren't doing it, I would say, a lot of the time. And so what it's going to take is hard teaching from Jesus, from the gospel, from God's word. And so it does. It speaks and it advocates for God's word, but it doesn't keep it. But moving on past that in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 23, it says, They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Now, again, just, just within these couple verses here, it, it's a continued notion of, well, of course, we are going to keep to God's laws. But what they always, or maybe not always, but what they often did was impose personal strictures, personal judgments alongside or really over God's laws to maybe keep the spirit of the law. And this is one thing that I would say keep in mind because a lot of times what we hear in the religious world is, well, what we're trying to do is keep the spirit of the law. And what people ultimately mean is we, we got to do this to keep the spirit of the law, so we've got to forget the letter of the law for right now. And what God says is they go together, and you can't separate them. And so, but this is, I think, to a degree, what the Pharisees did often. They added some traditions that maybe at the beginning were supposed to help, but there were some traditions, I would say, that, that they only had so that way, like I said earlier, they could get around the law. But moving past that, in verse 6, uh, of Matthew chapter 23. It says, They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. 
But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. In verse 12, it's amazing how many times this same notion is uh, repeated throughout the New Testament, throughout the whole Bible, but especially the New Testament. But regardless, thinking about how he ends that, it, it comes back to that teaching of, of people who are not looking at themselves as servants. They're looking at themselves as the one that everyone else needs to serve. It look, so the, the, a heart of a hypocrite, it looks like you know, that you're doing the part because you're spending a lot of time drawing attention on yourself doing spiritual things, but you're doing all the wrong things that mere look spiritual. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that even more so of how the Pharisees did this. But one thing that we see just within this context is the word phylacteries. I know probably most of you know what this is, but phylacteries were these very noticeable and visible things, things that you weren't necessarily going to overlook. Like if somebody walked in wearing phylacteries, it would, we would be like, what is that on your head? What is that on your arm? But what they were was little boxes, little tiny scrolls with scripture written on it. And they had it on their foreheads. And you can almost kind of see, as, as you think about this, you can kind of see the benefit of that, of having an ever-present reminder that scripture is what leads me, that God's word is what leads me. But what it had become is, they just missed the point. It had become more so a, well, let's get bigger boxes. Let's get bigger scrolls. Because if my scroll is bigger than yours, well, I'm better. <laughs> I'm more righteous. And, and it purely became more about the, just the merely visible aspect of this. The more spectacular, obviously the more righteous. The, the more visible, the more pious, and the more holy you were. And so they would use these things not to remind them of, I am led by Scripture and Scripture alone. They used them to draw attention on themselves. And so <clears throat> this is just a brief list of what the heart of a hypocrite looks like. From, before we even get to these woes that Jesus is going to give to the scribes and Pharisees, these hypocrites... He, I think, just gives us a pretty, uh, overall a pretty good overall description of what is behind these motives. Now, this is important to understand, but, but now that we know these motives, we already began with the fact that it's kind of hard to figure out whether or not I am a hypocrite because it's not always so surface. And so we do have to do some investigation. And I think that starting in verse 13 all the way through the end of the chapter, Jesus gives us more on the subject, not just the, what, what are the motives of a hypocrite, but now how do we identify these things? And so as we go through all these different woes, just understand that this is what Jesus is doing. So beginning in verse 13, he says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter into it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And so we're going to kind of break these down into the, these individual woes. Uh, as we go throughout the text. So from the very beginning in verse 13, what we have is this notion of, of people who are essentially hindering another person's faith because of their own personal qualms, their own personal issues that they have, specifically with Jesus. When you think about the context, the Pharisees clearly did not do much right in Jesus' eyes. Jesus is constantly having to rebuke them, and they're constantly at odds with Jesus whenever they're having conversations with him, biblical conversations, conversations about Scripture and what God is really trying to teach in his word. And so, obviously, the, the, there's, there's a lot of contention all throughout their history. But instead of the Pharisees deciding to repent, which means to change their ways, 
as they come into contact with Jesus and his words, instead of changing to look more like what Jesus would have them to look like, they try to go around and change everybody else so that way they won't accept that. So that way they, don't, uh, they won't look like that and therefore be a further uh, example of condemnation on the Pharisees' behavior. And so they used their authority and their reputation, their sway over the people, really so that way the people would not accept Jesus as the Messiah. And we have a few examples of this. But isn't that interesting that these were the religious elite? And, and sometimes we, when we say that, I think we ultimately, we immediately jump to, man, those despised Pharisees, the people of, of Judea didn't immediately go there. Maybe some did, but a lot of them looked at them like, I want to be like that guy. I want to be just as righteous. I want to be just as holy. I want to know the scriptures like he does. And so just understand that. And so because they had this kind of, Authority, this, this artificial authority, being that kind of, uh, a part of that group, they used that authority and they used that persuasions that they had to try and make people reject Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And, and I love the fact that all throughout the, the many examples of them doing this with people, they could never use Scripture. Over in John chapter 9, John chapter 9 in verse 22, Jesus has just healed a blind man. And, and the Jews, it doesn't uh, talk as much about the Pharisees, but they're certainly involved. <clears throat> as you see in verse 13 and onward. But specifically, as you get to verse 22, the, the, the Pharisees and the Jews, they ask this man, the, man, the blind man who was healed by Jesus, who received his sight from Jesus, they ask his parents, uh, about you know this situation was he really blind from birth we can't believe this because we don't like Jesus and so in verse 22 his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews and they, they told him they told them to go and ask him themselves themselves but they said this because they were afraid of the Jews for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus him to be Christ he was to be put out of the synagogue and so here's just one of many examples, but a very clear example of how the Pharisees used their sway and used their persuasion to try and keep people from making the good confession. And I would just, I would just again, note this very clearly. They can't ever use scripture. They only ever use emotions. They only ever use you know, logic to try and, you know... <laughs> They wouldn't look at it as intimidating people, but they were to try and intimidate people so that way they would never make that confession. And I would just say that if, if that is the case, maybe there's just a side point to make here. If we don't, if we can't convince people from Scripture about any given topic, I don't know how confident we should be in how vehement we are in our position. Because the Pharisees were very vehement. They were, they were very, very sincere and zealous in trying to make sure that people didn't accept Jesus. Because he's, he certainly can't be the Christ. Well, they could never use scripture to prove it. But you go down to verse 34. After all of this, they go back to the man who was healed. And, and they have this conversation with him. Well, who was this man? Where did he come from? And after all this, this whole discussion... And he, and he essentially says, well, of course, this man has to come from God. In verse 34, they answered him, you were born entirely, entirely in sin. And are you teaching us? So they put him out because he confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. But I also love their words. I don't love it, but it is kind of funny. Are you going to teach us? You're nothing but a sinner. Why? Because he disagreed. And so here's just a very good example of how the Pharisees used their 
their abilities, their skills, and, and their, their reputations and their authority to ultimately keep people from entering through the narrow gate, to keep people from following after the way. What does that look like today? Well, I think it looks like a man who realizes maybe that he's unqualified to be an elder. And so instead of trying to better himself, instead of trying to better his fellow brethren, what does he do? He decides that he's going to start discouraging as much as he can. Instead of trying to better himself and others, he decides that he is going to start, you know, just opposing everyone. Because if I can't be an elder, no one else is going to be an elder. I'll tell you, I've seen that. Or maybe he just decides, I'm just going to make things difficult. I'm going to make things hard. I've seen that. Not only that, but maybe this looks like someone who just very simply understands where this teaching takes you. And it condemns their lifestyle. And so what they do is see maybe their friends, maybe their family members start going down that path. And they say, well, if he understands it this way, Jesus' way, well, then what's going to happen? I'm, they're going to start pointing the finger at me because I'm not living up to par with the scriptures. And so what do they do? You don't need to listen to that. that, that that's, for, that's for mature Christians. You don't need to get into that. that. That's someone who is keeping someone, someone else from the kingdom, from entering into the kingdom. That's someone who's acting like a Pharisee. So a Pharisee is someone who hinders one's faith because of personal issues that they may have instead of changing and repenting and fixing those issues. Well, going beyond that in verse 14 of of, uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 14 of Matthew chapter 23, (coughs) it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater judgment. And I think this is one of the more <clears throat> obvious of the these sins here. But ultimately I think what this describes is someone who is using their religion, maybe someone today using Christ, using the church, their affiliation with the church. They use their Christianity, they use their the public eye on them as a means for sordid gain. And what I mean by that is is, is carnal gain. There was uh, I was reading a commentary on this this portion of scripture, Bull's commentary on Matthew in Matthew chapter 23. What he says is about the Pharisees, they used long prayers and pretended that their lengthened devotion represented pious character and were worthy of liberal support. Again, these leaders plotted with the children of widowed mothers to gain the estate. And so we already see in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says lengthening prayers for the false, the, the false, veneer of piety and holiness that's already been condemned in Matthew chapter 6 but this goes a step further because not only they were not only trying to gain something from this something carnal from this but they are also stealing from the innocent to do so they're hurting the innocent to do so hurting their brethren that's another interesting point because a lot of times when the Pharisees are being rebuked by Jesus a lot of times it has to do with their treatment of their brethren, not just anybody, but specifically God's people. And so we, are, we understand that, that Jesus has already condemned this kind of behavior. But again, what does is, what is sordid gain look like today when it comes to verse 14? How does this apply to me? Well, maybe this is someone who spends more time in the thesaurus looking for words to use in their prayer than spending time in the Bible to look for words to use in their prayer. Um, and maybe they're going to the thesaurus really just to sound smart. Listen, I understand that's a temptation. I was tempted with that a lot when I was younger. 
And I knew that I was going to be leading maybe public prayers or maybe I was going to be leading a prayer in our Bible class, in the high school class. And so I thought, okay, what's, what's different words that I can use than just the simple, than just the, the you know, foundational ABC words that we constantly use? And I'll tell you, when we get to the point where we start thinking more about, well, not, not even more, but when we start thinking at all, all right, I, I want to really sound eloquent. I want to sound scholarly in my prayer. We've missed the point. And we're acting just like the Pharisees. And, and very simply, very directly, I think this, this I mean, as we already see in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 23, I think there is something to say about lengthy prayers. Now, let me just make a disclaimer here. Sometimes there are going to be prayers that are a bit longer, but really hit the mark. And they're good prayers. But, but I think we could definitely see the, the, the connection that if we're just trying to lengthen our prayers, trying to make them longer just for to grab attention just to try and give a false uh, idea that I am more holy because I'm up here for longer that's that's clearly condemned by scripture but I'll tell you what I think this is crazy but I have seen this before I think this also looks like people who use public confession as a means to look pious I've seen that before where people go up and and one month they're up there and they make a confession about just something random and then they go up the next month and they make another confession about something that really I wouldn't even consider sinful. Just, you know, something that they struggled with. And, and, but, but, and, and then they make a habit of doing this over and over and over again. And what it's become is not a way to, to make sure that the brethren know that if I've done something publicly, that, that I've made things right. It's become a way for people to look at them and say, look at how devout he is that, and humble he is. He's willing to go, that's a problem. There was one woman that I think of in particular that, that started doing that when me and Paige were younger. She, over and over and over again and finally at some point some I can't remember who it was but somebody had to talk to her like you know this isn't used as your own personal Facebook page there's a reason for why this is here there's a reason for the for doing this but it's certainly not what you're doing and so we need to be careful about how we use spiritual things how we use our Christianity are we just using it to get attention well then we're just acting like the Pharisees Going past that in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. This is another interesting thought. When you look at the word proselyte, that, all that is is a, it's, it's a Gentile convert. It's, it's a Gentile who essentially converts themselves to Judaism uh, and, and therefore they're going to you know, let go of all of the, their Gentile ways, at least hopefully, and they're going to start acting within the scope of God's commandments. And you see a few of those Gentile converts from time to time. Rahab would be a proselyte. Uh, the, the, Gibeonites would, the Gibeonites would be a pro, proselytes uh, it, throughout the wandering in the wilderness. So, so that's all that that means. But... What Jesus is talking about here is, is proselytes were made twice the son of hell, not because they were Gentiles alone, not just because they weren't the Jews, but because these Pharisees didn't stress God's laws to these men. They were stressing their own judgments. They were stressing their own traditions. They were appealing more to personal agendas like emotions, opinions, perceptions than they were God's commandments. And I'll tell you, this is one of the main ways that I think we act like Pharisees is when we let our perception be the guide and we start saying that person's sinful, that person's sinning, when it is just simply a matter of judgment, or maybe it's not even a matter of judgment. Maybe it's just the fact that we need to 
ask one question and then things are settled. But perception can be a major temptation here when it comes to acting like a Pharisee. But, but what does this look like today? I think it looks like when, when, when we start making people more loyal to a man than we do Christ. How we do that is by showing partiality with brethren. We act like a Pharisee when we start showing favoritism to one brother or one sister over another. And it doesn't matter. Maybe, maybe they're engaging in something they shouldn't be, but I'm not going to say anything. Why? Because I have a better relationship with them. And, and, and if maybe, maybe, it's not, maybe it's not that deep, maybe it's just simply, well, I'm going to give them more patience. But you wouldn't give that same patience to someone else. Why? Because I just don't really care that much for them. And so I'm not going to show that same amount of love. Or maybe when it, uh, making, making people more loyal to a man than to Christ, maybe it's a certain Bible teacher, a certain preacher. And we're focusing more on what this person says than we do what Jesus says. Acting just like the Pharisees. This is making people more loyal to a doctrine other than Christ. Making people more loyal to a standard other than Christ. Do you understand the picture here? It is ultimately putting other topics, other people, other doctrines, other, other commandments and laws over Christ. And I would even put traditions in that. Because there are traditions that we've been taught by the words of Christ. And Paul would say that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. That you follow the traditions we gave you that Christ had given to them. But you don't start putting your traditions or other men's traditions in, in, in contest with that. And so that's one way that we can become just like the Pharisees. We, we struggle more debating about politics than we do arguing the truth of God. And so that's a Pharisaical thing to do. Skipping on or moving on into verse 16. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, oh, it's, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And so I think there's a very clear connection here to just outright honesty. But what does this look like in, in the everyday? It, it, a Pharisee is someone who looked for loopholes or tried to act like they could use loopholes in their walk with God as they looked at the commandments that God had given to them. They were trying to find ways to not fulfill the vows that they made to God. So what they did was start getting into technicalities. And that's just another word for loopholes. They started discussing these technicalities that really were futile and meaningless. Because, you know, you can lawyer up against a, lot, against a lot of people. You can lawyer up against, you know, big companies. But you can't lawyer up against God. But that's essentially what they were trying to do. Because they started getting into these technicalities, you see. Yes, but. <laughs> and, they're, and they're not understanding that you're bound by the whole law. You're bound by all of God's scriptures. They were trying to clear themselves of wrongdoing by lowering the commitment that God had required of them. By lowering the commitment and the devotion that the law always required. That's another misunderstanding that, that I think time and time again people get when they're studying the, the Pharisees and studying the rebukes that Jesus gives to them. Jesus is not ever degrading or depreciating the value 
or even the, the power of the law. What he's doing is saying that the Pharisees are guilty of that. But what a lot of times people do is they come and they listen to what Jesus says to, the, says to them and they, and they make the exact same um, decision that the Pharisees were being rebuked for. That you know what? The law just didn't matter that much. The commandments of God, they just didn't matter that much. And so what they do, they, can, they result in becoming the exact same way that the Pharisees were being rebuked for by Jesus in the first place. So sometimes people think that these, these pharisaical traditions were, were, were put in place to go further than God's law. But, but really, in actuality, many times they were introduced so that they didn't have to go as far as God expected them, as God required them. I, you know, sometimes we look at the law and we say, well, what, how exactly are we supposed to understand that? I think the Pharisees did understand that a lot of the time. And so one of the reasons they put these traditions in there was because I don't want to have to go that far. And again, you could just go to story after story where Jesus has to rebuke them saying, okay, well, but look, you're, you're willing to go this far when it comes to when it's going to benefit you, when you're going to profit off of this. But, but when it comes to your brother who is truly in well, you just act like it doesn't matter anymore. And you start being, becoming very severe in your consequences there. So what does that look like today? I, I, I think it looks like or it sounds like people who start to say, well, I would, I would never do that. I would never act in such a way. I never start looking for loopholes in our walk with God. Do you realize that when you were baptized and you became a Christian, that baptism was a vow that you were making to God? And in fact, not just the baptism. Isn't there something that we do verbally to be saved? We have to make a confession is what we say. And so there are in a few different ways that we make vows to God when we become a Christian. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I think that you, you see this, this uh, the, the notion of marriage or, or the, the, the institution of marriage being likened to the relationship between Christ and the church because you're getting into that kind of, of binding. You are bound to Christ forever and you don't get to start looking for other partners. And so every single one of us, verbally and in action, when we were baptized, we made that kind of vow to God. Now, since that vow that you made, have you ever tried to lessen your responsibility as a Christian? Or the responsibilities that you have in the commandments throughout the New Testament? When it comes to the church, we are commanded to edify and encourage. Have, when it comes to that edification process, I'm not as good as other brethren, so I'm just, maybe I'm not as responsible for that as, as some of these other brethren. That's lowering the responsibility. What are we doing? We're looking for loopholes because you know, I'm, just, I'm just not as good at it. Or maybe it, it, it's, it's a situation where discipline is needed within the church and we just brush that off because, you know, maybe it is needed, but, but you know, what is it going to mean if I am the one that has to bring it? What, if it? what does it mean if I'm the only one that's going to have to practice this? What does it mean if I'm going to have to preach on this or teach on this? I mean, I'm not really going to be able to do much. You're making excuses like Moses. Did, did those excuses lessen Moses' responsibilities? No, by the end of that, very clearly God says, it doesn't matter what excuses you can conjure up, you're going because this is the task I've given to you. It's too important. And maybe our problem is that we just think it's, it's not that important. Maybe that's our, the root of our problem when it comes to that kind of temptation. And so 
Pharisaicalism, it's, it's also looking for loopholes in God's commandments. But then you skip past that into verse 23. And this is probably one of the most uh, famous of, of verses in Matthew chapter 23. But he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. I don't know how you can get more clear. And yet, I was reading another commentary on, on some Bible software that I have on my computer, and <clears throat> it was interesting because as he talks about this woe and the two woes uh, prior to this, as, as he goes, as he starts talking or writing about verses 25 through 28, he says, similarly, these woes that were previously talked about deal with the priority of inward purity over outward cleansing. And, and so here, I think Jesus is so clear, and yet even someone who is now writing a very you know, academic commentary is making the exact opposite point that Jesus is. Jesus is not saying you focus on this over this. He's saying you've got to focus on it all. What sense does it make to focus on, on you know, the, tithing these things when you're not tithing yourself to God? Yes, they had forgotten the heart of the matter, and that is a very, very weighty matter. But, but can you really say you have the heart if you're not doing these maybe more tedious, maybe more menial things? No, that, you, you can't say that. And so both, you can't have one without the other. But the Pharisees, that's what they were trying to do. This, as I was reading that commentary, this man he just completely misunderstood the point that Jesus is making. What does this look like today? One, I think, really good example is when it comes to the worship assemblies. And I think you see this a lot with parents and children. We stress, you got to be there. You got to be there. Yes, you do have to be there. But what often happens is we make attendance the heart of the topic instead of the tithing. Tithing, deal, and mint and cumin. I think that attendance is absolutely necessary. And I've even preached on that before. You can go back to that lesson and you can say, from, without a shadow of a doubt from the scriptures, attendance is necessary. But I don't think that that is, I think that the weightier matter, I think that's the smaller matter. The weightier matter is, what are you doing when you get here? And sometimes kids start becoming unfaithful. Sometimes kids don't, aren't showing as much devotion as parents want them to. And the reason is not because, well, we've been here every single Sunday. We've been here every single Wednesday. But you haven't done anything when you've been here. You haven't stressed anything to them when you've been here. Yes, we need to be here with one another. And we need to be here because this is what God has commanded. But if you think that mere attendance without any participation means anything, Go back to the prophets and see how many times God has to tell his people, you come to me and you give offerings. But even with all of this work and effort and energy, it means nothing to me. It's vain because you don't mean anything by it. And that's what we do. We, we make the weightier matters, the weightiest matters, the, the, the heart and soul of our religion on the, on the you know, the more tedious things. When I'm not saying we need to neglect those things, we need to stress those things, but we also need to stress the purpose of those things. And so are we doing that? Are we truly focusing on all of God's counsel? Or 
Are we neglecting some portions over others because it's easier this way than maybe another way? This commandment is easier to obey than another commandment. And so that's what the Pharisees did. Am I doing that? Continuing on in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That doesn't sound very gross when you say inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It just doesn't sound very dirty. It doesn't sound very disgusting. But, but let's make the connection. He even gives this kind of illustration. You have a drinking cup. Would you drink out of a cup that was overlaid with gold on the outside, but it was used as a spittoon? The only reason I know what a spittoon is is because me and my dad and my brother used to watch a lot of westerns. And I'll tell you something. <laughs> I've even had the misfortune, or I had a friend <laughs> that had the misfortune of, of going over to a Coke can of someone that was chewing tobacco. Unfortunately, he was chewing tobacco. <laughs> and my friend picked up that Coke can, and he took a big old swig and just made a sour face like that. And the first thing out of his mouth was, Poison! <laughs> Disgusting! It, I almost threw up just thinking about it. I can't imagine being the one to actually have to engulf that. That's disgusting, isn't it? It doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. I don't care if it's a Dr. Pepper label on the outside. I'm not drinking out of that. That's disgusting, isn't it? Do we view lawlessness and hypocrisy with that level of disgust? Jesus says that's how God looks at it. How could God use us as a vessel of honor if... If that's all we are, a spiritual spittoon, we'll be used as a vessel, but one for dishonor. So we need to be careful. And again, I would just say that this comes down to people who maybe, you know, you think back to that baptism that we were just talking about. People that are supposed to be living resurrected lives. Go over to Colossians chapter 3. As Paul is speaking to Christians, people who have been baptized, who have been buried into Christ's death to rise in newness of life. Look at the language he uses in verse 1 of Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, since you have died, and now you're living in Christ, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, to impurity, to passion, to evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And he goes on in verse 8, just several things that he says you need to consider as dead, because that was... That, that's a purely earthly mindset. That's a purely earthly perspective. And now you have a new one. Now you set your mind on higher things, on heavenly things. And so what this looks like today is maybe you've been baptized and, and, and you are supposed to be living a raised up, a resurrected life, but you're still struggling with some of these things that Paul says need to be counted as, as dead. Impurity, greed, immorality. In verse 8, maybe anger, malice, Bitterness, hatred for brethren, abusive speech. Do we struggle with any, anything like that? I don't know. That's kind of a broad list. And so am I, am, am I guilty of those things? What Jesus says is that you're nothing but a whitewashed tomb. You are a filthy, 
but beautiful cup. Is that, is that going to be enough? Is that going to be enough for me? I, I certainly hope it's not going to be enough. Continuing on in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 29. Matthew 23 and verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? So there's that final woe there that we have. And what is he describing? But ultimately a spiritual fraud. They have spent so much time bringing attention on themselves through spiritual things. But they're nothing but a fraud. As we were just talking about, they're whitewashed tombs and they're beautiful cups that are disgusting on the inside. They're, they're a fraud. They are not truly a, a true disciple. They're someone who merely feigns support to God while not supporting his people while not supporting his word, while not supporting his will. Now again, I think every single one of us in this room would say the same thing that they said. We wouldn't have hindered the prophets. We would never have done anything to hurt them. We would never have been a stumbling block to them, right? How do you react when you hear a lesson on modesty? You don't, maybe you, maybe um, you hear a lesson on that and, and the preacher's pretty you know, firm about this, you know, firm in God's word, and... and Maybe you go to somebody who you know is hurt by that. Maybe you know someone who probably is, is in opposition to the teaching of God on that. And maybe you say, don't you worry about a thing he said. That was, just, that was just so legalistic. I tell you what, most of the people that say, that, that use that as, as a pejorative term, they're more legalistic than anyone. <laughs> they don't even realize it. Have you ever said something like that? Or maybe when the preacher preaches on withdrawal or the Bible class teacher talks about withdrawal and just says what the Bible says about it. Have you ever heard someone say, that was just so insensitive. That was just so harsh of him to say. That was so harsh of him to try and make those applications to, to us, to me. You ever said something like that? Or maybe when you hear a lesson on just whatever the sin may be, you know, from, from sexual sins to, to maybe the more mundane, common sins, you know, we consider them small, whatever the case may be. Have you ever said something like, hey, not, you know, not everyone is this condemning. Don't, don't worry about the things that he's saying. Not everyone is this harsh. Not everyone is this severe. He's just, one of, he's just a little bit more fanatic. He's just a little bit more, you know, involved in, in, in his Bible study. He, he just gets kind of carried away with himself. Now, regardless of what our intentions may be if we have been the ones to say things like that, just understand that this is the very spirit of those who killed the prophets. They may not have done physical violence, but I've certainly done spiritual violence. There was uh, one elder that, that, that I appreciate and, and hold very dearly in, in my heart, but he, he, he had a, a daughter who had gone astray, and she had left the faith, become unfaithful, and and they had all, from the family to, the, from the her, you know, blood relatives to the family of God, everyone was united. It was a beautiful front for God to say, "You're in sin, and the relationship therefore has to change. You've been the one to initiate this, and we have to follow through with God's command on this." What a beautiful thing. Not beautiful that she had fallen away, but beautiful that there was a united front here. But there was one woman who went to that daughter. And they said, I cannot believe what they are doing to you. That is so unloving. 
That is so harsh. How dare they? And when this man, who was an elder at the time, heard about that, he went to that woman and he said, Listen, we have scripture to back up our words. You have none. And if I ever hear you come to her and say something like that again, discipline is going to come this way as well. Because that is purely unscriptural. And I know you don't want to be a false teacher. So don't start, don't continue to act like one. I'll tell you what, people probably think, hear that and think, yeah, that, that's harsh. He, he's an unloving man. I'm sure all kinds of people said that about the prophets. <laughs> and so don't think that you are so, that you are so much better than, than, than these people. Don't think that you're so much better than the people that are just preaching God's word simply, simply because, oh, I, I know better and I'm just trying to make it easier on them. Simply by lessening or taking away completely the impact of the gospel in someone's life. Kind of like what we started with in verse 13. You are guilty of the blood of the prophets. You're in the same camp. That is a Pharisee. And so, am I guilty of this? Are you a Pharisee? Am I a Pharisee? Am I guilty of any of these things? In verse 34 as we end here... Jesus says, therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so a pronouncement of judgment and a promise of hope. The end, the conclusion of acting like a hypocrite, acting like a Pharisee, is untold damage on others, those that we love and everyone around us, and untold damage on our own souls. This is the judgment that Jesus says is coming for those individuals, those who are being hypocrites, those who are being like the Pharisees. Are you a hypocrite? Are you a Pharisee? If you are, there's... It's not like you're in a hopeless position. Remember what Jesus says, that I wanted to come to Jerusalem. And in the same way, he wants to come to you and me. If we are currently walking in sin, if you're a Christian and you have gone astray from God's path and you need to make things right, there is hope for you because you have an advocate in heaven waiting, waiting like a mother hen for you to just come back into the fold. But if you're not a Christian, <laughs> hypocrite or not, what you have done is not only stained your hands with the blood of the prophets, but you've stained your hands with the blood of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, by breaking his law and sinning against him. Do you want to wash your hands of that? Become not just a beautiful cup on the outside, but inwardly as well. You can make your life right this very evening. If you want to become a Christian, you can repent of your sins. You can make a confession based on your belief and be faithful in everything that he says you need to do and be baptized into his death to rise in a resurrected life, to live a resurrected life. Are you subject to the invitation of Christ by any means? Please come forward as we stand, as we sing.